The City Quick Connect podcast is brought to you by the Municipal Association of South Carolina. Hey everyone, this is Russell Cox, editor of the Municipal Association of South Carolina's Uptown Publication, and I am joined on the podcast once again by Eric Scheidel. Eric is the Municipal Association's General Counsel. Eric, how are you? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for asking, Russell. How about you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. We are we are recording this just a couple of weeks after annual meeting and after the association's annual meeting. And, and you came off of two presentations, I think it was? Not just two presentations, but two back-to-back presentations. I was on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. We did a session on social media. And at 11.15, immediately after that one, we did a session on ethics, conflicts of interest and recusals mm-hmm. with the with the provocative title. Do you really have to leave the room? <laughs> what, was, what was the answer to that question? I, I, the answer is you don't you don't have to leave the room, but we think you probably should. I like it. Yeah. I like it. And, and that is specifically for instances where there is a known conflict of interest for the council member. That's right. If if you the advice we gave in that session was if you have to recuse under the ethics act, if mm-hmm. you in fact have a conflict of interest, then the reasoning for why you should recuse if you should recuse yourself, that means you cannot influence the decision. Mm-hmm. And so one way you can influence a decision is by voting on it. But even if you don't vote on it, another way you can influence the decision is by talking, making faces, oh, oh gosh, rolling eyes. And so the safest way to protect yourself mm-hmm. from an allegation that you influenced the outcome of the decision is to not be in the room. To not be in the room. Right. So that was that was your most recent presentation, but for this podcast, we are going slightly further back in time to a Uptown article we asked you to write earlier this year that I learned a lot from, and it was on the topic of development impact fees. And we, we, we were talking about this before we started rolling that like, Gosh, we're just going to have to start with the question of what are development impact fees? Why do they matter? Well, it's uh, let's start with the general concept. Uh, you know, if you say what's an impact fee in general, mm-hmm. and and what that is is if if someone is going to take action that imposes a cost on the community, then you can charge them for the impact of that action. Mm-hmm. So let's give you an example. If you're going to build a new subdivision. Uh, you're a developer, you're going to build a new subdivision. And and in that subdivision, there's going to be, say, 300 new single-family residences. And mm-hmm. and maybe there's a multifamily component. So you're, you know, you're adding hundreds of new people to the community. There will be an impact for that. The, those new residents, the, their children need to go to school somewhere. You might need additional firefighters. People uh, always get up in arms about the new traffic load. Right. Yeah. So there'll be a, a load on the streets. There'll be a load on public safety. You may end up with a police officer whose entire patrol shift is in and around that new development, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So the idea of an impact fee in general is that you would charge a fee to the developer to offset the cost to the community in the future from that community or that development. Now, in South Carolina, we always use the term development impact fees because that's we have a statute on 
the development impact fee regime in South Carolina. It, it's actually, you know, I'm, I'm getting old enough to what, <laughs> to what is recent for me may not be recent to other people. In my life, this is a relatively recent uh, statute. It was 1999 mm-hmm. that we finally adopted the development impact fee statute. Now, before 1999, you know, if you're thinking, okay, we're, we're a community, we're a high growth community, maybe we're a coastal community, um, there's lots of development happening. And there were questions, you know, c- could we charge developers under the home rule power, mm-hmm. you know, under the Comprehensive Planning Act, under, you know, various other ways, like could it be a uniform service charge? And so what happened, as the General Assembly often does, is these questions kind of came up uh, and communities were doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. The General Assembly in 1999 passed a law called the Development, the South Carolina Development Impact Fee Act. And it basically, it, it, it gives you not only the procedural mechanism to put development impact fees on, but, but it also gives you some substantive content. What can you charge a fee for? When is it paid, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, one of the most interesting things, I think, is that the Development Impact Fee Act, you know, conceptually what you're doing is you're saying to communities, you have the right to charge the developers of new development for their proportional burden on the cost of providing municipal services, right? So the question is, you know, is this the only way to do it? Mm-hmm through the development impact fee statute. And, and what the act says is it, it gives you a definition of a development impact fee. And it says that what a development impact fee is, I'm going to quote the statutory definition. Our, our listeners, I apologize for this, but this is what the law is like. It says that a development impact fee is a payment of money imposed as a condition of development approval to pay a proportionate share of the cost of system improvements needed to serve the people utilizing the improvements. Now, if you pick that apart, basically you're saying you're going to charge somebody as a condition of their development approval to pay their fair share of the cost of that development. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, I want I want our listeners to understand that, you know, this is in some ways it sounds technical, but in other ways it's it's common sense. You know, you, you get new development that there are municipal services that have to be used mm-hmm. by that new development. How do you pay for those things? You, you know, you have existing taxpayers who have been paying along and along. You know, let's take a, probably what, what's one of the easiest examples is is water. Because, it, it you know, it makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, how it works. So you've got, you know, an existing water system that serves the number of customers you have. And there's really three main components to to a water system. There's the plant that treats water. So water comes out of the ground or comes from surface water or wherever you get your raw water. You have a plant that treats that to make it safe for human consumption, mm-hmm. right? That's that's what you call the production capacity. How do you produce your water? And that plant might have a capacity of, say, 5 million gallons a day. Then you have what's called a distribution system. That's how you get the water from the plant to different parts of your community. Mm-hmm. And then you have essentially the connection. So an individual customer will connect to the system with a meter and lines that run from the distribution system to their home. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I'm giving you this is because think about it. If a new if a new house, a single house comes in, then you're going to have three questions. One, is that house connected to the system? Two, if not, 
do you have the distribution? Are there pipes that could get it to their house? Three, do you have enough treatment and do you have enough capacity in your treatment plant to provide water for that customer? Mm -hmm. When you look at an individual home, all these are pretty minor decisions, right? But what if you're talking about, what if you're a community of, you know, 2000 people and the new development that's coming in is proposing to have 500 new homes. Mm -hmm. It's always been the case that you can make the developers or the homeowners, as the case may be, pay their cost to connect both to the distribution system and from the distribution system to the existing system. But that doesn't get at the production capacity. Right. The point is, if you add 50% more population, your water treatment plant may not be enough to produce enough water for them. You may mm -hmm. have to expand your existing plant. Well, how did you get the plant you've got? Well, the existing ratepayers and taxpayers paid for that. But the new development that has not historically paid taxes and rates to the system, that's what's going to increase the demand. Mm -hmm. So it's in a situation like that that development impact fees are used. Now, you know, I've given you the definition of an impact fee. Mm -hmm. It is a fee charged as a condition of development approval. And the Development Impact Fee Act says a government may not impose an impact fee regardless of what it's called, except for in compliance with this act. So to the extent there used to be questions, can you do it under home rule? Can you do it as a uniform service charge? Can you do something else? The Development Impact Fee Act since 1999, when it was adopted, has said, if you're going to charge new development for the cost they're imposing on your community, then you have to do it in accordance with the act. That it's the only authorizing mechanism. And I believe in, in the article you discussed what were called procedural safeguards. So I said there, there are two components. There's mm -hmm. the procedural component and the content component. What, you know, what do you have to do and how do you do it? Mm -hmm. So the how do you do it procedurally? The first thing that has to happen if the local government wants to put on an impact fee is they adopt a resolution and direct the planning commission to do the legwork. Essentially, the planning commission is going to create a plan, probably with the help of outside experts, that puts in numbers what these future impacts are going to be and how they're allocated. They do that process upon direction of the local governing body. At the end of that process, the planning commission makes a recommendation to mm -hmm. the local governing body exactly the same as they would with a comprehensive plan. Uh, they make the recommendation. The act here is clear that the local governing body does not have to accept the recommendation of the planning commission, but they have to receive it. They can't take action until there's a recommendation. Mm -hmm. Once they get the recommendation, they can adjust it as they see fit in compliance with the act. But when they decide to go forward, so at this point you've taken two steps, resolution directing the planning commission, to Develop prepare plan. the report, yeah. send it to the commission, make a recommendation. You've gotten it back with the recommendation. What happens then is the local governing body can approve the plan or a variant of the plan by ordinance. Mm -hmm. The ordinance has to be approved by positive majority. This is something that shows up every now and then in, in procedural law. Positive majority means a majority of the entire council, regardless of how many people are at the meeting. So you got a seven-member council, a quorum of four. All four would have to vote in favor of it at that meeting. Positive majority. The second thing that has to happen is you have to have a public hearing. You publish notice of the public hearing at least 30 days before the hearing. You have the hearing. 
Everybody comes, says what they would like to say about the about the plan and the impact fee. And at the conclusion of that, the council can adopt the impact fee ordinance. Mm -hmm. So the procedure, you know, it, it, it's not it's not that complex. It's send it to planning commission. Planning commission makes a recommendation, comes back, public notice. Thirty days later, public hearing. After the public hearing, approve the impact fee by ordinance. Now the hard part is the content requirement. So the procedural part is familiar. It's really not that different from amending your comp plan mm -hmm. or rezoning. It's like making a map amendment to you know a rezoning process. Planning commission comes through, they make a recommendation, you act on it. The complicated part is really what, what, what's the content, like what actions are required from a content perspective, a substantive perspective, to approve a development impact fee. Now, the whole purpose of the act is to make the, the local government quantify, almost always with expert assistance, how much impact will there actually be from new development. What does new development cost and therefore what is reasonable to be charged through an impact fee? Right. And, and this became, to give you a sense of, of how important this is, there was a case that was decided just last year. It, was, it, it came from York County. York County had put on a new development impact fee to fund schools in Fort Mill School District Number 4. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're used to seeing impact fees, you know, in the, in the thousands, you know, it might be $2,000, $3,000 per residential unit, mm -hmm. per new home. And then that, that same number will be, you know, distributed to in different percentages to, to multifamily housing or commercial development based on their, their impacts. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're used to thinking about it just as a single family house. You're going to build a new single family house. Impact fee might be in the thousands. In this case, because growth is so high, because the need for schools was so great, because the cost of construction was what it was. The the impact fee in that case, I don't have the exact number, but but it was in the tens of thousands of dollars. It but, was very unusual in how high it was. Right. Local developer sued. Interestingly, he sued, technically he sued the state of South Carolina, not York County. And the reason for that was because the allegation by the developer was the act itself, the Development Impact Fee Act, was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Had a couple of reasons for that, which we won't talk about here. The, the The important argument from my perspective that the developer made is the development impact fee contains no limit on the amount of the impact fee. There's no stated maximum. And so his argument, the developer's argument was because there's no stated maximum, that means it's, a, it's an unconstitutional delegation. It gives too much authority to local governments. They could make up whatever they wanted to. Uh, and, and the response, you know, the attorney general defended this case because whenever there's a case alleging that a state statute is unconstitutional, the attorney general's office defends it. And then they brought in private counsel as well. And York County, of course, was involved in this. So, so the court said that the limitation on the fee is not stated as an absolute amount. It's not stated in the court actually used the term in a dollar amount. Mm hmm. It doesn't say the fee can't exceed $10,000. What the act does instead is it says you have to quantify how you got there. You have to have this study that shows what the actual costs are going are expected to be, how you're going to allocate that out, 
Uh, and it basically is subject to review on that basis. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, it makes a lot of sense. On one hand, that the court is saying, you know, what, what what's the highest impact fee in, in a coastal community with incredible growth and high cost of construction? You know, building a new school in Mount Pleasant, presumably, is a different proposition than building a new school in a rural part of the state. The important point, the reason this matters for our discussion today, is that because the court has said the limitation on the amount of the fee is the study in which you prove that the amount of the fees is justified, Mm -hmm. that emphasizes how important the study is. And so what I would tell local governments is, the court has said now, you know, that the, the, the entire limitation on the fee is having a reliable study. Mm-hmm. It drives home that the study itself has to be thoughtfully and carefully done. In other words, you can't just make it up. It's very tempting, you know, when I used to work for city government and sometimes you would, you'd have a question like, well, how much is this going to cost us? It, it, it's, it's very tempting to ballpark, mm-hmm. to estimate um, to, to use anecdote or historical memory. But, but what the act contemplates is that effectively you're going to have to bring in professionals, engineers, uh, to, to, to make reliable estimates of cost, reliable estimates of demand, how many students are actually going to be added to the school district if you build 400 new houses. You know what this is reminding me of? Do you remember word problems in math class where um, they would ask you to make a calculation and it would tell you to show your work? Right. Absolutely. You have to show your work. Yeah. We'll just end with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the whole point is show your work for how you got to the numbers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, now it's a very useful tool. And, and, you know, we, we had some statistics in the article that we wrote in Uptown that said, you know, a majority of states and a majority of local governments with more than 25,000 inhabitants nationally use development impact fees. But, what, you know, why would you use development impact fees? Well, partially it's because there's been a lot of development in recent years, partially because it's harder to raise taxes these days mm-hmm. uh, for, for good reasons. It's, it's, there's less federal money to support these kind of things. So communities have been looking for, well, how, how do we fairly allocate the cost of development? And I've, I've made the point in many contexts that, that that from the perspective of an existing resident of a community who's been paying their water and sewer bill, who's been paying property taxes over many years. Decades, possibly. Decades. Yeah. To, to, to get the town or city or county's infrastructure to where it is now. Mm-hmm. On day one, you have this many residents, you have this many fire stations, you have this many police stations, you have this much wastewater and water treatment capacity. And then you ask yourself, well, what if we double our population? Clearly, the existing facilities are inadequate. Mm-hmm. So how do we pay for the new facilities? And there are especially these days, plenty of places all around the state asking exactly this because there are parts of the state where the development pressure is tremendous. That's right. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, it's when I was working in city government, you would take a first pass at this question, uh, a related question, actually, in the context of annexation. 
Mm-hmm. If if you if someone comes to you and says I'd like you to annex my property, I think most local government officials are somewhat familiar with the question of they've worked on this question. Well, if we annex this property, there there's an upside. Mm-hmm. There's additional tax revenues from property taxes. There may be additional water and sewer revenues from them as a customer. But you you balance against that that requires new services. In most cases, the annexed property is not currently under your fire protection services. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're certainly not under your police protection services. So in that context, you know, you're balancing the cost of annexation against the benefits of annexation. Mm-hmm. Analogously, when you're thinking of new development, there are benefits of new development new tax revenue from the growth in the tax base, new water and sewer revenues, but there are additional costs. Mm-hmm. Unlike an annexation, you don't have the right to just say no. This is development that's going to happen in your community. Mm-hmm. That being the case, how do you pay for it? And that's what the development impact fee statute is about. Well, I think I... I think I've got a good sense of it, and that definitely covers that last point we were trying to get across. So I, w- I would say, Eric, any, any, any final thoughts on this? I think that in my experience with development impact fees, what I've seen is that it is almost imperative that you have an outside professional help mm-hmm. you prepare the study, the required study. You do want that plan to be defensible if you're challenged so that you can explain to a court, this is how we got to these numbers. And I would be very careful in addition to making sure that you have a high quality plan, make sure that you scrupulously comply with the procedure. Adopt a resolution, send it to your planning commission, get a recommendation, have your public hearing, count votes to make sure you have a positive majority, (laughs) right? Uh, and just make sure that you don't that you that you don't create any weaknesses in either the content or the process of your plan. I, I really liked that phrase: scrupulously comply. <laughs> right, I like that. Right, show your work. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that covers what we had to talk about here. Um, I will say, by way of signing off, remember, with the City Quick Connect podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify now. Oh, we're all over the place. Wherever wherever podcasts are sold. They're not sold. <laughs> Some are. <laughs> but, uh, Eric, thank you, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. My pleasure, Russell. Thank you. The City Quick Connect podcast is one of several ways the Municipal Association keeps you informed of the opportunities and issues impacting South Carolina cities and towns. Learn more at www.masc.sc and stay up to date with the association's latest happenings on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.